Thank you for coming. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, please. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. And if you um, have one of the Bibles that we're offering you right now, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We are preaching a series through the book of Exodus. And uh, so we just want to serve you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. I trust God's going to speak to you this morning. Not because I'm the one doing the speaking, but because God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. And we're just going to study the word. This is the centerpiece, really, of our worship. We sing to the Lord, but then we study the word. And so his word is his self-revelation. I trust everyone's been served. One last call. Anybody need notes? Raise your hand. Okay, down here in the front, some more notes, JP. Anybody need a Bible? Great. Let's let's launch into studying the Word of God. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. We all set on the recording? Beautiful. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh Nisi, or in English, the Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let us pray. Father, help me to preach your word as you desire it preached. Lord, take my preparation as an offering to you and now sanctify it in your son Jesus Christ to the building of your church. And may my friends this morning hear with ears of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. William Harvey Carney was an American Civil War soldier and the first African American to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Kearney was born a slave in Norfolk, Virginia, but escaped to Massachusetts through the Underground Railroad. William Kearney earned his Medal of Honor during an attack on Fort Wagner while serving with the 54th Massachusetts Voluntary Infantry. He received the Medal of Honor for saving the American flag and planting it on the parapet of the fort, and although wounded, holding it while the troops charged. 
Perhaps you've seen the movie Glory. It's an epic based on the true exploits of the black soldiers comprising the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. One of the most gripping portions is this assault on Fort Wagner. There on the sandy beach, while within 1,000 yards of the fort, were members of the Union Infantry, including some 600 men from the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry. Behind them was the 6th Connecticut Infantry, but on this day, it would be the black soldiers of the 54th who would lead the assault. The assault on Fort Wagner would be the first real test of these young black Union soldiers. So it was that the brave but unbattle-tested young men of the 54th found themselves lying in the sand. Imagine yourself with them, waiting for the order to lead the advance on Fort Wagner. And among those brave soldiers was 23-year-old Sergeant William Carney. As evening began to fall, the order came. The brave men jumped to their feet and charged at a run towards the enemy stronghold. But the Confederate defenders were ready. And cannon fire and bullets flew through the air, devastating the advancing 54th. Heedless of the danger and often fighting hand-to-hand, the 54th continued the advance. Ahead of them, Sergeant John Wall carried the colors, the red, white, and blue of the United States of America. Suddenly, a rifle bullet dropped Sergeant Wall, and the flag began to fall to the ground. Sergeant William Carney threw his rifle aside, grasped the colors before they touched the ground, and charged forward. Another rifle slug sliced through the air, this one hitting Sergeant Carney in the leg. With soldiers falling all around him, Carney mustered the strength and courage to ignore the pain and hoist the colors high in the air and continue to lead the advance. Somehow, he gained the entrance to the fort and proudly planted his flag on the parapet. But, because the battle was so fierce, everyone else had been killed or wounded. This solitary figure and his flag pressed against the wall of the fort for half an hour as the battle raged on. Soon, the leaders of the command realized that the battle had turned and ordered a tactical retreat. Again, the flag would be the symbol. Sergeant Carney, with no regard for his own life, held the flag high and began the tactical retreat. And as he began that retreat, stumbling through chest-high water, bullet after bullet struck him, first in the chest, then in the right arm, then another in the right leg. Sergeant Carney struggled on, knowing that this flag was the symbol was the command. He would not let it fall. Now, from the safety of the distance to which most of the 54th had retreated, the remaining valiant warriors watched this brave man, Sergeant Carney, struggling to safety. A retreating member of the 6th Connecticut came by and said, You're wounded. Let me carry the flag. The indomitable courage of Sergeant Carney replied, No one but a member of the 54th should carry the colors. Despite the sounds of rifle and cannon fire that followed him, Carney struggled on. Another bullet found its mark, grazing his head, but Carney wouldn't quit. Amid the cheers of his battered comrades, Sergeant Carney finally reached safety. Before collapsing among them from his many wounds, his only words were, Boys, I only did my duty. The flag never touched the ground. With the primitive communications of that time, They had no radio telephones. They had no cell phones. They had no satellite communications. The flag was the important visual contact 
for the troops. When it moved forward, they moved forward. When it went backward, they went backward. It was crucial to battle commands. And therefore, in the Civil War, many, many awards were given for protecting and displaying the flag under fire or capturing the enemy's flag. In the same way, in today's narrative, Yahweh is Israel's standard. Israel's banner in the battle. You see, reading from your notes, God provided manna from heaven, water from the rock, and now deliverance from the enemy. He can be trusted. We are continuing in this theme of faith toward God. Corey served us so well last week. We are not to test God. God tests us, and when he tests us, we are to trust him. Here is act three. Act one is, will you feed me, God? I'm hungry. Yes, here's the manna. Act two, will you give me water, God? I'm dying of thirst. Here's the rock. It is Christ. Yes, I will. And now, oh, God, we're being attacked. Will you defend me? Will you defeat my enemies? And God says, yes, I will. Let's walk through the narrative. Let's take a look at this narrative, and let's see the momentum building. First of all, look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, who is Amalek? Well, if you look here on the screen, Genesis 36.12 tells us the following. Tema was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amak to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. So who is Amalek? Amalek? Amalek is Israel's cousin. Don't you hate it when cousins attack you? It's not a fun thing. Who's Esau? Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob became Israel. Right? So Israel, God chose Jacob to be his people, and God said, no, I'm not going to choose Esau. So that's who Amalek is, the enemy of the Lord, the enemy of God's people. And where do they attack Israel? Well, turn your notes over. You will see a map. I love maps. If I were better with uh, computers, you would see this map on the computer, on the screen here, but I'm not. But if you look at that map, you will see the Sinai Peninsula, okay? The Sinai Peninsula. In today's world, Saudi Arabia would be sort of off to the right, that big land mass. Okay? Egypt is off to the left. Israel's right up above it. This is the Sinai. And at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, does everybody see Rephidim? Now, we really don't know where Rephidim is. We kind of think it's there. And it's probably right near Mount Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments were given. We don't really know where Mount Sinai is. Okay? But... We think it's down at the bottom of that peninsula. So right around there. And Rephidim was probably an oasis. So two million people pull up to the rest stop. Can you imagine the line at the bathroom there? And everybody's hungry and thirsty. And so they're getting a little little drink, a little soda. And all of a sudden you're at the counter. You know, you're paying for your soda. And all of a sudden gunfire erupts. Boom, 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 boom. What's going on here? This was a break. You get attacked. You get attacked by Amalek. And that's what happened here. They get attacked at Rephidim, and the scriptures tell us that the tail end got attacked. 
So probably at the tail end of this would be the oldest, the weakest, or the youngest and the weakest. And Amalek had no mercy. They start killing the oldest and the weakest Israelis, Israelites. By the way, this is the first mention of combat. This is the first time that Israel will now go into combat. Now, you know I love combat, right? Just had Memorial Day. I'm a combat kind of guy. I mean, up to this point, God's killing their enemies. Israel just sits back and does nothing, you know? He wipes them out with plagues. He wipes them out by drowning them in the Red Sea. But now he's saying, all right, dudes, get your your AK-47, get your M-16, you know, get your AR whatever, get your 50 caliber, let's get on the, the, the... the uh, armored personnel carrier, let's go! All the dust, bah, 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 bah. we're going to go fight them. Only one problem, they'd never fought before. What do we do? God's going to now teach them how to fight. And it's the very first mention of a certain individual. Look at verse 9. So Moses said, to whom? Enter our hero. Good old Joshua. Joshua. First mention of Joshua. First mention of combat. Who is Joshua? Well, if you look up here on the screen, Numbers 13.8 tells us the following. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Ah, I thought his name was Joshua. It is. Look at verse 16. Now, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And you want to know what Joshua means? Yahweh saves. And do you want to know what the Greek of Joshua is? Jesus. Ooh, it's getting good now, isn't it? God picks a fight with his enemies, and he raises up Joshua to go defeat the enemy. I'm seeing the gospel here. I don't know about you. If you you aren't, I invite you to consider that. All right? Okay. And Joshua is now going to be be commissioned by God, and in your notes, point two, Moses commands Joshua, and he fights Amalek. Moses commands Joshua, and he fights Amalek. Now, number three, point three in your notes. Moses appeals to God on the hill, and we're going to find that uh, at the end of verse nine. He says to Joshua, you choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Interesting, Joshua chooses the men. Remember, two, two million people. I don't know how many men out of those two million 600,000, something like that. And uh, I, I got the nod from Corey. That's fine, Al. 600,000 is within my acceptable, you know, error range. When he, when he gives me one of these, it's like, oh, man. So about 600,000 men. So Joshua chooses the Airborne Ranger Delta Force SEAL team of the 600,000 men, right? Probably guys like Marcos, you know, John, Caesar. Caesar tells us about his exploits all the time at Alpha, right? Anyways, he chooses valiant men, all right? And now Moses says, you choose the guys, you go out and fight with Amalek, and tomorrow I'm going to stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Wow. So Joshua goes and fights. Number three, Moses goes and appeals. And he appeals to God with a staff. Now, let's walk through the scriptures of the staff. And I encourage you, at this section, under, under point three of your notes... Moses appeals to God on the hill. Jot down some of these. You don't have to jot down all the words, just the references. You ready? What is the staff that Moses takes? Well, Exodus 4.20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. 
and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Exodus 4.20. Next, Exodus 7.10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff. This is the same staff that was in Moses' hand. Moses delegated it to Aaron before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Exodus 7, 20. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And what happens? And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. What was the Nile representing? The chief god of Egypt. What was God doing saying? I trump you, chief god of Egypt. Boop. You turn into blood. You're no good any longer. Sounds like a fight to me, right? It is a fight. It is a fight. With the staff. Um, Great. I think that's it. No, it is not. Sorry. Exodus 8.5. Exodus 8.5. Right? Good. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and look at this, and make frogs come out of the land of Egypt. Whoops. Ladies, how would you like that? Just frogs everywhere, okay? That's the power of the Lord. Exodus 8, 17. And they did so. Moses stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. All right? Exodus 9, 23. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rained down, ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Serious stuff. And finally, Exodus 10.13. Exodus 10.13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, which ate all the crops. So what's happening here? Moses goes up on this hill. He lifts up his hand to God with the staff of God, and he begins to cry out to God. Now, what's key about this? Well, look at verse 10. Back in Exodus 17.10. So Moses did, excuse me, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. With Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Whenever Moses' hand was held, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Okay, here's the deal. Who is Aaron? Joshua's brother. Who is Hur? Ah... Ever heard of a guy named Caleb? Caleb. You have? All right. Many scholars believe Caleb was one of the 12 spies. 12 go into the land later on. 12. Only two come back with a good report. We could take him. He was a gator. We could take him. We're going to win this game. Send me in, coach. Ten of them go, "Uh uh-uh, no way. They're going to beat us. Bad. Guess who the two were that said we can take them? Joshua and, you got it, Caleb. If I'm not mistaken, Caleb was the guy at 80 that's running up the hill in Jerusalem saying, I'm killing the Jebusites. I am t- that's my hill. I want to be, Je- be Caleb. I want to be Caleb. You could be Joshua, Wally. I'll be Caleb, right? When we're 80, right, in another 10 years for you and probably 30 for me, 
when we're 80, when we're 80, hey, when we're 80, we're going to be running up the hill of Miami, aren't we? And we're taking the city. That's right. You'd be beating them with your guitar, you know, I'll be throwing whatever at them. I want to be, I want to be Caleb, man. Well, Caleb's son is her. All right? And here's the deal. I want everybody to do this. Put down your pens and, and, your, and your paper and everything. I want everybody to lift their hands up right now. Lift them up. All right, for the, for the rest of the sermon, no, no, come on. For the rest of the sermon, I want you to keep your hands up. All right, you can, you can if you want to keep them up. Let me ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever lifted your hands and just kept them up? How long can you keep them up? Not long, trust me, Okay. If, you, if anybody's ever done boxing, you know what's difficult with boxing? Just try holding your hands like this for about 20 minutes. They get tired, much less punching. Moses probably held his arms up all day long. Now, how big was the staff he had in his hand? I don't know. But here's what he discovered. He was 80-some years old, by the way. Right? So he was about the age of Caleb. Right? So he's holding his hands up. You're not Caleb. I'm Caleb. So, so he held his hands up. What does he notice? When his hands start coming down, Israel starts losing. The men are screaming out. Men are getting killed. When the hand goes back up, Israel wins. We got, a, we got Houston, we got a problem. I'm 80, and it's about you know, 10.30 in the morning in the desert, and it's hot, and I'm thirsty. I can't hold these up. So Aaron and her, they have a bright idea. Here, sit on a rock. A rock? <laughs> sit on a rock, and we're going to hold your arms up. Okay? Now, what, what, is that, what does that signify? I don't know. It could signify prayer, intercessory prayer. It could signify many things. Scholars are sort of arguing about it. Here's what it signifies, biblically. God, help! <laughs> okay? If that's praying, if that's just faith, Many people believe it's just a sign of, God, I acknowledge you. This staff, this staff represents your authority. And I acknowledge you, Lord. Amen? All right. Now, point four in your notes. What happens? Joshua overwhelms Amalek. The battle goes well when Moses' hands remain raised. The battle goes poorly when he doesn't. By the way, folks, and you'll find that in verse 13 of Exodus 17. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. By the way, he didn't kill them all. He didn't kill them all. Really, that, that, that word there, overwhelmed, is more of like he wounded them. He kind of caused them to retreat, have a tactical retreat. Okay, so they, they went away. Now, point five. God commands Moses to remind Joshua of this battle. Key point here. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this, write what? This battle. As a memorial in a book. What book? There was actually a battle book for Israel. I was in the military. There are histories for military units and their commendations. The 101st Airborne Division was commended for the Battle of the Bulge. They received a presidential citation. You will learn about that if you ever get the movie or the series, A Band of Brothers. They have a unit citation. Why? Because they were brave in the midst of a difficult battle, a battle that turned the war. 
So there was a similar battle book for Israel, but this battle book wasn't just because there were a lot of heroes and Medal of Honor winners. It's because God was the main hero. I want to remember that God beat back my enemy in my first battle. In my first fight as a heavyweight, God won, and I duped out the champion because God was with me. Okay, So, so Moses is, is reciting this in the ears of, of Joshua, and he says something else. Look at the end of verse 14. And I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So, what is this thing with Amalek? And why is he saying, tell it to Joshua? All right, here's a thought for you. Let's think for a moment. Original author is whom? Moses. Original audience is whom? Israel. What's the original context? When did Moses write Exodus? All right, here's a thought for you. If this occurred about two and a half months after the crossing of the Red Sea, because the next chapter, chapter 18, says in the third month they get to Mount Sinai and the law is given. If this occurred two and a half months after the crossing of the Red Sea, this may have been written some 30 years later. Maybe. And it may have been written to a Joshua who's now obviously 30 years older. A generation is about to die out because of their unbelief. But where would this generation, where would these people be poised as Moses writes this and reminds Joshua? They're they're poised on the border of Israel and they're in battle formation. Right, Marine? All right. They're locked and loaded, ready to take Israel maybe 35, 40 years later. And so God wants to remind Joshua, who's maybe got a little less spring in his step, First mention of Joshua here. God wants to remind Joshua, Joshua, I beat Amalek then. I'm going to beat these big uglies now. Trust me. Let's go. Attack is at 0500. We're going to cross that line of demarcation, and we're firing as we go. They're big. Don't worry about it. I'm bigger. You got that? Okay. So there's a purpose for why he said, tell Joshua to remember. Because of what he's called Joshua to do. Now, point six. This point is where this thing takes off. This is where the biblical theology comes in. Moses builds an altar and calls it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. This is what we find in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This word, banner, Nisi, has a rich range of meaning. What was the banner? Well, it was probably the staff. Did it have a flag like Mr. William Carney when he had the American flag? He had a staff, but he had a flag on it? Probably not. But banners can be many things. Banners are symbols in combat. Banners are symbols of who is with us. I'm fighting under the flag of the United States of America, the red, white, and blue, the stars and stripes. And we're going to take that fort because we've been called to fight this battle for the greater purpose of the union. I will give my life for that. People are doing that in Iraq and Afghanistan right now. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. My father fought in World War II. Thank God for his combat. 
My brother fought in the Vietnam War. Thank God. But I think there's something greater happening here. I believe this banner is indicating the very presence of God. Let me invite you to go to, a, actually to look up on the screen here, and look what it says in Numbers 21.8. Numbers 21.8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And then let's look at John 3, 14 and 16, the next passage here. You can write these down, by the way, underneath uh, point 6. Numbers 21.8 and John 3, 14 to 16 for your further study. Listen to this. Okay? The Apostle John writing in the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John 3, 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How many of us are familiar with John 3, 16, but we're not as familiar with John 3, 14, and 15? Get the Old Testament symbolism right. And relax a little bit too, Al. Let's do both of those. But get it right. Because it's not just a little verse I pop out of my pocket because I learned it as a kid. It is God's purpose that he has had a savior who he prefigured by a serpent of all things, put on a pole and raised up in the wilderness back in the time of Moses and Israel. And then perhaps 1,500 years later or 1,400 years later, he raises up the true savior, the true Joshua, Jesus Christ. No longer is Moses on a hill. Jesus is on a hill. And no longer is the standard the staff of Moses, but it is the cross of Christ. And this is our salvation. Man, if you don't get anything else, get that. We're not Jews, so these stories don't roll off of our tongues as readily. You may not know what happened in Numbers. Let me tell you what happened in Numbers. No time to go into great detail. Forty years later, they're at it again like me and you, right before they go into the land, they're complaining yet again. And God sends serpents to begin to sting them. And they start dying. And Moses in Numbers says, what do I do? And God says, take this serpent. Now, why a serpent? I don't know. Okay. And put it on a staff. And many people say, it's his staff. And raise up the staff. And it's, oh, I'm dying. These people are dying all around them. I mean, can you imagine how, how terror, just, just filled with terror people are when they're bitten by a snake and they begin to go into maybe some sort of fit and die. And it's just gross. And it's horrifying. And Moses says, tell them, whoever looks at that will be saved. And then John says, like Moses put the serpent on the staff, Jesus If you lift him up and you look at him, you'll be saved. Man. Thank you, Lord. What can we say? We're all bitten with the poison of sin and we're dying, man. We're dying. There's only one place to look, and that's Jesus. High and lifted up. Jesus raised up on a cross on a hill to die for. Thank you, God. Is the Lord your banner today? If you're a 
guests today. Thank you for coming. I realize this may be unusual for you. I, I want to honor your visit. I, I thank you for coming. I, I pray God speak to you. And if you would do not know him, that you would look up and see Jesus and be saved. Hmm. Well, point seven. Let's bring this, this thing home. What is this war with Amalek? Look, look at the passage again. Look at how Exodus 17 begins. Isn't this interesting? Then Amalek fought with Israel Refidim. Who's the aggressor there? Amalek. Is it not? Yeah? Now look at verse 15, B, 16, excuse me, 16, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Ah, that's really hard Hebrew. No one really knows what it means. Most people say it's a vow. And actually God is swearing by himself. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Oh, Amalek, you're going to pick on my people? I'm going to have war with you from generation to generation. How did it go with Amalek? I'll let your fingers do the walking here through scriptures. Let's take a look. Here we go. Deuteronomy 25, 17 and 19. You can write this down underneath God vows war against Amalek, point seven in your notes. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19 says, Remember what Amalek did to you. Hmm. On the ways you came out of Egypt. That's the text we're studying today. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Ah, so Amalek represents those that don't fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, this is, this is written to Israel right before they're going to go into the promised land, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for your inheritance to possess, you shall duke Amalek out. Or, in biblical jargon, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay? Did they do it? Well, let's look at 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3. 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3. Write this down. If anybody says God's not faithful, God forgets. He doesn't forget. This is a biblical pathway to say God is faithful. 1 Samuel 15, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Pause. When was 1 Samuel 15? When did that occur? Well, it occurred in the time of Saul, and Saul would have been about over 100 years later. Yeah, at least. Maybe 150 years later, okay? So about 150 years after the story we're studying today, God writes this to Saul, the first king of Israel. Listen to what he says to Saul. Hey, hey, look, I noted what Amalek did 150 years ago. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not mess with God. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now you, Saul, go out and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, women, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Scorched earth policy. Not politically correct. But who's going who's to challenge God on this one? I'm not. <laughs> Plus, I kind of like scorched earth policy. All right, 1 Samuel 15, 7 to 10. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Remember that area that we're looking at now is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, circle Agag. Well, don't circle them, you don't have them, but think about Agag. 
If you see Agag, let me know. But just think about Agag. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That, my friends, is disobedience. This is the text where Saul loses the kingdom because he disobeyed God. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Now, I'm not, we can't go into this, but later Samuel goes and says, Hey, how come I hear sheep in the background? I thought God said destroy it all. And who's this guy Agag standing in front of me? And Samuel walks up, my kind of prophet, pulls out a sword, and whoom, just chops his head off. That's what God said to do. Sorry, that's what God said to do. And that's what Samuel did. So if you have a problem with that, talk to God about it. Because why? Because that is the effect. That is how we should look at God's enemies. Not our enemies, God's enemies. Kill them. Kill them now. Kill them quickly and violently. Isn't that what Paul says? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Kill it! Anger, rage, malice, slander, evil language, filthy language from your lips. Kill it! See, this is great for young guys. I mean, guys, Christianity is, like, way cool. Very dangerous, will cost you everything, but you get to go kill things. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Got a bunch of girly, girly boys here, but anyways. I just called them out, didn't I? You go kill sin. That's a definition of a true man. Not one who sins a lot, but one who says no and has self-control. You want to show me strength? You say no to sin. You say yes to righteousness in the face of a world that's screaming at you to do otherwise. You go lop Agag's head off. Start with your own heart. Then you're a man. You got my respect. You got my respect. All right, 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. <clears throat> Whoa, sorry about that. 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. There it again. <laughs> now, when David and his men came to Zitlag, just sounds like you should do something bad to Ziklag, right? You know, like <laughs> pop it or something. I don't know. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Zitlag. They had overcome Zitlag and burned it with fire. So again, David is having to deal with the Amalekites, and he's going to go wipe them out. But this, is, this one's really good here. Esther 3. Esther 3, 1 to 4. Esther 3, 1 to 4. Uh, when does Esther happen? Probably around uh, four or 500 years after King David. Maybe 300 years after King David, roughly. Okay, So this is while... Israel is in exile, okay? So maybe three, 400 years after David. Now listen to this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Ooh, Haman. The Agagite. Agagite. Did I get that right? Who do you think a- uh, Haman's uh, great-granddaddy was? Agag. Headless one, okay? Agag. But obviously, a couple of Agag's offspring survived, so Haman is a descendant of Agag. That makes Haman a Amalekite. There you go. 
the son of whatever, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Haman is put in a position of authority by King Ahasuerus. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, who is a Jew in exile and loves God, did not bow down or pay homage. So young men don't bow down and pay homage. Stand there. Everybody's bowed down. Keith Green has this great uh, cover, album cover, to the, the, I think the album that you had us listen to. And you have everybody bowed down, and you've got, I don't know if it was Mordecai or it might have been another saint who's just standing there. And here comes Haman. And you have one guy that's bowed down, and he's looking up like, like you know, he's thinking, get down, you idiot, they're going to kill you. And he says, I don't care if they kill me. I'm not bowing my knee to Haman or the flesh. I'm going to stand and worship God. That's the spirit of Joshua and Caleb. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Oh, no. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, who would be the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarius. And go read Esther. What ends up happening, the very gallows that Haman built to hang Mordecai on were used to hang Haman on because Queen Esther had courage, ladies, and appealed to the king and said, O king, and God moved in and killed the people who wanted to kill God's people. And I bet you Mordecai knew the story in Exodus 17. And he knew that Haman was an Agagite and was a stinking Amalekite. (laughs) And God is going to destroy him. He also had a lot of fear, because Haman was very powerful. All right. It is clear that God picked this fight against the Amalekites, just as he picks the fights against our enemy. The Amalekites represent the enemies of God, and so our enemies, but the battle is the Lord's, and we must look to him for the victory. There is a vow of perpetual enmity between Israel and Amalekites. There is a vow of perpetual enmity between God and his enemies. Don't you know that vow began in Genesis 3 when God said, I will put put enmity between you, your seed, O woman, and the seed of the serpent. And we know Jesus is that seed of the woman. So therefore, what do we do when we're attacked by the Amalekites? Application, what do you do when when Amalekites attacks, what do you do? You identify your attacker. So the question for you to discuss this Wednesday night, who or what is your Amalekite? You remember that the attack is primarily against God, so you are not surprised or offended by the attack. Are you surprised or offended when you are attacked? Three, you run to the fight. You stir yourself to action. So what is God calling you to do? to defeat the Amalekites. Point four in the application, you appeal to God to defeat your enemy. Are you more aware of the power of the enemy to defeat you or are are the power of God to defeat the enemy and win the battle? And number five, you persevere in the battle. Who are your Aaron and her to help keep your hands raised to God in the midst of the fight? Oh, friends, Let's bow our head in prayer. There's no time for worship this morning, but there is time to pray. And let's ask God to help us in the battle.
Because it's an ancient battle with an ancient foe, represented here by Israel and the Amalekites, but fulfilled in Christ and his enemies through us. Let us lift up the banner of Christ who delivers us from the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us much grace this morning to identify the enemy properly. Lord, to trust you fully. To join the battle courageously. To not grow weary in well-doing. And to believe you that in due season we will see the fruit that we've so longed for and the victory that you assured us in your resurrection from the dead. The banner was raised up on the hill of Golgotha, but oh, the victory was assured in the resurrection from the grave. You ascended into heaven. You're seated at the right hand of God. You do intercede for us. Our Joshua, our Jesus, God saves, is the banner over us. And with that banner flying high, we will join the battle with great faith. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face and banner upon you and give you peace. Amen.